You only get into out the game what you put into it, Shelley. Mm -hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much. Yeah. Somebody said the football is a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Hello and welcome to the Man Marking Podcast. Welcome to episode three, the podcast that aims to explore mental health within football. This week, we spoke with Miguel Delaney. Uh, so I am the chief football writer of The Independent in London. Uh, I still often make that dis distinction because I used to work for the Irish Independent and it was always a bit of a bone of contention in Ireland. And I also had a, a, uh, the same role at the uh, the Sunday Independent uh, in Dublin. But yeah, that's uh, that's my job and what I do. And uh, who do you support, Miguel? Um, well, Ireland has always had a curious relationship with English football um, in which we almost treat it as our own league because we were always exposed to it. But I don't really support an English club. My local team is Bray Wanderers. Uh, and obviously, as you know, as you guess from the name, uh, Miguel, my mother is from Navarra. So our local team in Spain is Osasuna. This is going to sound like a really random question. How did your mum and dad meet? Uh, so they're both on holiday in Spain. Um, and I actually... I'm not, just, I'm not sure I'd be saying this, but <laughs> I, I, I basically exist because the Eurovision Song Contest, because in, in 80s, recession, recession racked Ireland. My dad put a bet on uh, your man, Johnny Logan, the Irish singer, to win the Eurovision Song Contest in 1980 or whatever year it was. And with his winnings, he, he went on holiday with his mate to Salo and met my mother, who was also in, in a holiday in Salo. So, yeah. So joining me this week, ever present, is Ryan Pulford. Ryan, how are we doing, mate? Yeah, not too bad, mate. Yourself? Yeah, not so bad. I uh, I saw on Twitter that, that that your dad's come come out of hospital. How's he getting on? Yeah, not too bad, mate. He was in um, Arrow Park, our local hospital in the Wirral, for eight days. He's suffered with the bad the bad end of the coronavirus symptoms, but fortunately, uh, after some amazing care. He's back at home to to do the rest of his recovery at home. So we're made up. Um, I think you you raised some money by shaving your head for the critical care unit at Arrow Park last week, and I just want to say what amazing job they did with me dad as well. Yeah, I couldn't have put it better myself, Ryan. So joining Ryan is Ant. Obviously, Ryan's mentioned there the balding that I gave myself recently, and what some people won't know about Ant is he is a former background artist, a former extra. I didn't think that would come up, to be honest. That's taken me aback, yeah. Uh, used to do a little bit of extra work. You would have seen me as a mainly in, in Peaky Blinders, looking very excitable at the races. I think it's you, quite a famous scene. I've not seen it myself. Yeah, well, that was, that was what I was kind of going on to ask, Anne. So, obviously, we've, we've seen me bald myself this week. You famously had a Peaky Blinders haircut. Obviously, at the moment, the hairdressers are shut. How's the barnet looking? Uh, I think there's many, uh, many of my friends who probably say it's shocking. Um, I'd be one I, of them. Yeah, I, I think it's okay. I mean, it's as Lego hair as you can get. Mm. Ryan, you've seen it. Thoughts? Um, I've seen worse. I've seen better. 
been better. We've been worse. I, I, it's it's one of them. Everyone's in the same boat. We're all looking like we've got a bit dishevelled at the moment, aren't we? So I know I need a shave and a haircut, so I don't really want to comment on others too much. Yeah, fair. That's probably wise. And, and you're probably all noticing that we've got a Katie Taylor-Smith shaped hole in the podcast today. Um, Katie is abiding by the social distancing rules, so much so that she's social distancing and isolating herself from the entire podcast this evening. Uh, she's got a, a little bit of a headache, so she's she's gone to bed. We've given her the night off. Uh, we're hoping to get her back into the squad for next week. So, Ant, Miguel Delaney, Chief Sports Writer, The Independent in London. Do you want to just give us a bit of a, an idea as to how this interview came about and, and why we wanted to speak to Miguel? Uh, I think this came about uh, as a bit of a reach from ourselves, you chiefly, um, sliding into the DMs and, and just throwing a question out there, whether you'd get involved in the podcast. I think it was really in its infancy at that time. And Miguel being Miguel, very happy to do it and came along and he was he was wonderful to listen to, as I'm sure we're going to going to hear in a bit and um i was fascinated by him um just from the outside looking in you know someone who deals with 140,000 twitter followers and and puts many opinion pieces out there like he does and how he deals with that on a daily basis uh, i think he touches upon that quite well in the podcast and 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 how how he deals with that is is quite quite interesting really i think it's quite quite simple and effective as well yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think as you say, we, we we kind of reached out. He's quite high profile and and got a lot of followers and so so we're really happy that he came back to us and he was he was really generous with his time and and I think it was the first one we did via hangout as well. So that was good. Uh, Ryan, obviously every episode we have a theme. Do you want to talk us through the theme for this week? Yeah, of course, Dan. Uh, the theme this week was tribalism, talking and Twitter. So what we looked at was sort of the behaviour and attitudes that stem from strong loyalty to one's own football team and social groups. Uh, how openly talking is becoming more prevalent in the game. And um, as one of the Britain's leading sporting voices, how Miguel deals with social media back and forth that are in danger of going too far. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we would have heard from that little intro there that he's he's the, the product of uh, a Eurovision win. Uh, I don't imagine there are many people who can say that. Although a little shout out to, to Johnny Logan, who was the only... Eurovision winner to win it twice, lads. Are we Eurovision fans? No, uh, not particularly. But they were quite funny back in the day, listening to Terry Wogan. I think that yeah. might be one for the teenagers. But you know, I'm just going to be James Blunt and say no. I, I liked it when Terry Wogan would lose his lose his shit. To be honest with you, at, at, in the latter years when he just basically just went a bit rogue with his commentary and just sort of said, oh, we're not going to get points from them, are we? And stuff like that. Do you know that was the, about uh, as fun as it got, to be honest with you. The, the funny thing about that Terry Wogan thing is apparently they used to give him, um, he used to have a bottle of alcohol. I can't remember what it was. It might have been Bailey's, I think it was. And during the, the competition, as it went on, he would get lower and lower into that bottle. <laughs> and um, that's why his commentary became funnier and funnier because he was getting drunker and drunker. Is is Teddy Wogan one of your one of your impressions you've got in the box? And I can't do Teddy Wogan though. I, I'll give it a try. I'll I'll I'll, I'll give it a try. Yeah, I mean, here we go. Teddy Wogan, yeah. I think that might be okay. I'm not sure. We'll we'll wait. Yeah. We've got plenty of time. Just felt the viewers drop off. Yeah. <laughs> um, so before we get any more from from Anthony's impressions box, this is our interview with Miguel Delaney. 
Do you enjoy your job? Yes, I do. Yeah, I still, I mean, I, I have thought this about, about this a lot because, I mean, it's quite a weird thing with journalism in this sense, particularly with football journalism, in that if, first of all, to actually, I think, to have the passion to get into it, it's, 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 uh, to, get, to get into it in the first place, you obviously need a lot of knowledge, which comes from a lot of passion. But if you were consistently applying that passion to the job, you're probably not doing the job right because journalism, journalism ultimately has to, uh, I think it inherently involves an element of cynicism. And, you know, lo- looking at things, like, cause I suppose it's, a, it's about reporting on the game for the greater good of the reader, which is about the greater good of the game, I suppose. And that will involve asking questions or refusing to accept answers that maybe um, are, you know, in a manner that's possibly uncomfortable. So, um. And and through that, I suppose you do end up covering maybe a lot of the uglier side of the game, just just by by the pure virtue of it. And yet, at the same time, you do that because your love is ultimately for the game. And, and I, I remember thinking about it, say at the, at the World Cup last year or two years ago now, uh, and I, a World Cup like it was always my dream to cover one at like the Champions League final. And they are obviously absolutely brilliant to do, but they are relentless slogs. Like I mean, it, it's kind of it's until you've actually covered one as a journalist, it's pretty difficult to kind of. To, to, to realize and people would say oh what are you moaning about getting paid to go abroad to cover games but it's kind of like it's you know four hours sleep a night a lot of traveling yeah. games every day trying to generate content uh, and so yeah and, and even beyond even beyond that side of it when you're getting stuck into kind of a, a big issue or something you feel passionate about or even even when you're writing about something that you, enjoy, you enjoy like like a nostalgia piece uh, on, on the day we're doing this I put a big, big piece today out about the 95-96 season, which is, of course, an era when I would have been kind of, you know, 12 years old. Right? And I, I, I enjoy that side of it as well. I'm kind of getting, I'm getting into kind of football history and researching that. So, yeah, I still, despite a cynicism that the job will naturally bring and is also necessary, I still very much enjoy the job. Um, so you mentioned there that it can be quite like, pressurised environments um, when you're doing those long tournaments and even when you're just doing a day-to-day job. Um, how do you, like, get it, stop letting it get on top of you? Do you, do you use anything? Do you... Well, I mean, it's, it's one of the things in, in that sense, actually, um, and unsuccessfully, I try to keep off social media when I'm... Sorry, I'll shut that down. Um, when, when I'm... Uh, <laughs> when I'm not working. But what's also happened, and maybe there's a slight sadness to this, when, when you have a job that had it that was previously your pastime your main interest which football was i think it, it almost means then that when you actually have free time i'm not inclined to watch football um right. un- unless you're going as a, a kind of a social event i think that's actually different like there are some times where i find myself like say i'm sitting in a pub um and a game is on and i don't have to work i don't have to think about it in that way and you kind of say to yourself Jeez, I forgot how much I enjoy this sport because you're, you're not thinking about it in a professional sense but i think just to kind of have that uh, split, I think, is necessary as well. Um, so, obviously, you were born in Ireland and, and now living in London. What's that like, sorry, being away from home um, pretty much constantly? Um, and well, now, to be honest, I'd, um, I'd probably consider London home. Um, but I have to say, that, that, maybe, that maybe took uh, a bit of time. I, I do remember, because I used to live in Dublin city centre, and like Dublin is really... Like well, at, at that time, there's actually been a bit of a housing crisis in Ireland since then. But at that time, and because of my rental situation, I was in a place where you could you just walk into the city centre from where I lived, which I used to absolutely love. And like that was that was probably the aspect of Dublin I missed the most. And it took a while to it took a while to actually adjust 
to the size of London. And also because because um, when I came over here first, it was purely for work and because I, I had a job, for, a job offer at the time uh, and having my, my previous paper having gone bust. So I, I did come over purely for work once actually a, a relationship ended. But in that first year, beyond the size of London, I actually, I do, it was probably a little bit lonely as well uh, because naturally just moving to a new area, your social circle is that bit smaller. I mean, loads of times when like, You'd want you'd want to go out on a Saturday night, but the few people you knew weren't available, so you kind of you were just stuck inside. So it, it, that did take a little bit of an adjustment. And in that sense, actually, I have to say, when I first moved over here, what um, there was actually I, I knew I vaguely knew a lad that played that organised the five side football team, and he was more cynically looking for players. <laughs> but that was uh, not that I'm good around. Uh, but that was actually <laughs> very 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 valuable in actually expanded my social circle and that and I still play for that team and that 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 group is actually now so some of the lads on are are among my best friends in London and were, were key to my kind of social circle. How do you manage to differentiate between what you're writing and what you reckon people read will read about? So is there any other conflict where you're writing something and you're thinking I really like this piece? I, I suppose I'm lucky enough that I'm in the position in my job where it's very collaborative with with my sports editor ben who's great to work with uh, and, and also i suppose there's a certain influence in it because of the title itself uh, and with, uh, without sounding egotistical in this way or anything like that i i kind of think i'd like to think i've got a good instinct that i, I, I kind of back myself on ideas if you know what i mean football and I, 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 whatever about whether I, whether what I want to read is what the general football public wants to read, I do think that makes a difference in the terms of the quality of the writing and journalism. Because uh, I think the, the writer, if it's something he wants to write about, it's they're naturally more involved, naturally more passionate about it. And I think that does come across. Um, obviously, um, earlier in your in your career, you don't have those options. And you're kind of you're you're assigned what to do much more. Um, I suppose in the, in the job I'm in now as well, I generally be kind of going to pretty much all the kind of big matches in England and the, and the Champions League in that sense. Whereas, you know, pre- previously you're kind of, you know, when you're um, like about three, four years ago or before I took this job, you'd be kind of going to where work would want you to go. Um, so like, I, I was just because the position I'm in, um, there's not more freedom, but it's just maybe... It, well, I, in saying all that as well, I mean, there are some times when, like, you have to go to the big six game on the weekend. But so we go to this because it's got the biggest interest, but maybe it's not as interesting story. Um, but yeah, that, that's just, and I, I like that's generally how it works. I'd have a very collaborative relationship with my with my sports editor Ben, who was great to work with. Okay, so what's the most? Uh, say, I won't say boring, maybe boring. What's the most annoying recent article that you've had to write? Um, Maybe try, try, trying to do comment pieces in coronavirus, actually, when we read, like, in fact, it's quite weird. Two weeks ago, I did a comment piece in coronavirus, and it was one of those ones where I, I actually suggested it because I thought I had a point to make. But the point I, I had to make basically only was it lasted 200 words, and the piece would have to be kind of 600 to 800 words. So after that, it was a bit of a battle, and I found myself just kind of writing kind of pat cliches. And once you're in that situation, yeah, you, you know, um, this is, so there, there are some times when you're, when, I'm, when you're writing a piece and you kind of think to yourself, this is boring me writing it, so God help the reader. <laughs> Mercifully, it, it, it doesn't happen that often. I, I, a, cl- a classic of that is actually, it's uh, when you're on the beat in journalism. So that would that would be the, the, the beat is basically you go to the game, you do pre- press comments before the game, do a, a quotes piece on that, go to the game, 
write match report, go to press conference afterwards, write quotes on that. And there's sometimes you do those quotes pieces where they're just it's, it is really like teeth because you're just kind of you're just scrabbling to kind of trying to make make any kind of comment into some sort of interesting line or interesting angle, and it's not just there. But thankfully, at the, like the independent, we've encouraged we're, we're we're constantly trying to get away from that that model and that kind of you know the hamster wheel element of it. And, and try and do stuff that's more original, basically. So that, that that's good. Um, so in the game, it's quite, you know, you've got people who've played a lot of football, won cups and medals and scored goals. And then you've got these people who are, well, without being offensive, nerds about the game, just love football and are writing yeah. about the game. Is there any, like, clash between the two when the, when the two come together or when someone writes something about... Uh, I don't know. Say so you write an opinion piece mm. on um, something someone said on Match of the Day or anything like that. Is there any other clash between that? Is that quite common? Um, a little bit. I mean, we've all seen social media, and sometimes people who are pundits will take issue with something someone has written, and yeah, you know, they, they never play the game thing. Does occasionally come up, but I mean, generally, I think like I mean, the one thing is when you go to games, you're 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 in press rooms where the broadcasters are too so you'd re- you'd, re- you'd regularly see the pundits i mean you, like you see the likes of like jamie carragher at games a lot mark lawrenson um any, anyone you care to think of really and, and through that i suppose they naturally become just not part of the journalism pack but just part of the media who are always in these rooms so it, it becomes a bit more fluid it, on that i have to say like one thing i i noticed i say like when I'm writing an article on, on the real nuts and bolts in football, I try and I'd, I'd always basically get on to football people. I mean, I, I trust my opinion on the game a fair bit and, and to a certain degree. But you, you, you actually, I think you would still want, if you have that available, specialist knowledge to kind of bounce to real technical stuff off. So I would always kind of like run certain things past people I know. Uh, and, and I do find that anytime I've done TV, say, or something like that, and they actually they ask you about kind of the really forensic elements of kind of tactical analysis of football. I don't think that, I don't really think the journalists, the journalists should be doing that because I think that's specialist knowledge. I think the journalists should be there to kind of provide, you know, factual context um, uh, and put, put things in that way. So I think the two can complement each other, even though naturally there's going to be an occasional tension. You know, when you first got into that environment, how nervous were you? How were you trying to deal with that? I, I remember, but I, I wasn't so nervous in terms of that sense because I quite enjoyed doing it. One of, one of the things actually they never teach you in a degree in a journalism degree, say, but it's one of the most essential parts of the job. Uh, I used to be, you'd, you'd be nervous actually just picking up the phone to cold call someone, or uh, if you've got, if you've got someone like if you're giving someone's numbers because it's actually it's a lot more I suppose difficult than people think, and and also naturally a lot of people actually aren't that comfortable to get a call out of nowhere from someone they don't know. Who, and they, they start wondering why you have their number. Um, so, so that element, it, it takes a while to get used to that. And, and even now, actually, it's something that it's something that's maybe been taken out of the job a little bit through WhatsApp, actually, because now, say, if you if you, if you want to, um, I don't know, in, interview a player or whatever, or, or, or anyone that's been in the game, you can at least WhatsApp them and kind of explain the context of why you're getting in touch so they can see it and decide. Although that makes it a lot easier for them to kind of fob you off. Often we find footballers um, in the papers for, for various reasons, and it might not be from an article you've written, but in the front pages, stumbling out of a club or crashing a car. Is there ever clashes sort of inside of your teams when somebody else is reporting on them? Because I imagine you must build relationships 
down the years and people may just see that as a story released by the independent and yeah. immediately contact you and say why are you releasing this and those type of things how does that work and is it ever an issue in your job well, well the biggest tension it usually comes and then i think there's probably more a case of the classic tabloids where there's a tension between the news department and the sports department because the sports department yeah. obviously need to make relationships um or, or whereas the news department don't have to, I don't have to maintain those relationships and you will get cases of players like I remember, I remember actually being after one Champions League final one one fairly famous footballer he was coming through the mix zone uh, and like obviously the group of journalists were waiting to talk to him and yeah. he just comes by and, and turns on one journalist I'm not talking to you uh, in much more coarse terms uh, and he and he goes why not? And he goes well, you, you, your your papers turn me over. And he goes yeah, that, I haven't the sports firm hadn't, but obviously the player wasn't having it. And so it's fair fair enough to a certain degree. But yeah, it can bring up tension. But even even within sports journalism itself, sometimes you know you know you you will get clubs contacting you over um, a piece that someone else in your organisation has written, uh, wondering yeah. about <laughs> or something. Often looking for a number so they can uh, they can try and argue it with them. Exactly, and I imagine with your role, it does rely on relationships to key players at clubs um, and, and various outlets. So, does that make your job a lot more difficult? And can can you have any say in what the news report on, or is, is that completely I separate? Mean, sometimes they might give you. Well, luckily, I've never really been in that situation too much. Yeah, or at all really. But I mean, I, the way I've heard it works a bit with tabloids. They'll, they'll sometimes give the journalists a head up. They sometimes won't, and there's no there's no real say. Um, I mean, we're going really into journalism politics here, but what what would also be a bit of a classic of the genre is in news departments. They will if they have a damaging story. They, they some of the, they will. I don't think this is again probably true of the classic tabloids, the classic tabloid news departments. I should say they'll go to, they'll go to their subject who they've got some damaging story on, and basically say, right, we're going to run this, or we won't run it, and you you give us an exclusive in some other way, and that, uh, that has that has happened a lot. Yeah, and and do you think media outlets have a responsibility to censor what they publish, or do you think it's almost the opposite way, and these are people in the public eye, and, and it should be published? Uh, I think I, w- I obviously wouldn't agree with censorship, but I think what I would say is that. There should be it. Should, it shouldn't come into censorship. It, it should come down to editorial judgment, at, at least in somewhere that operates uh, by uh, in or attempts to operate in an ethical, responsible manner. And that's yeah. what. And, 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 and there's always that classic thing of whether a story is actually in the public interest, um, or or is is it just titillation or whatever. Yeah, and it sometimes seems to be the timing of stories as well. So I think yeah. sort of the famous one in, in this country is just before we're about to enter into a World Cup or during a World Cup, there seems to be a story about somebody yeah. that is released. Um, but I suppose well, that's well, difficult to juggle, isn't it? Well, more relevant to what you're talking about, actually, I'd say is, like I remember about two years ago before a big game, we news filtered out that a player had been wasn't in the squad. And everyone yeah. thought it was some sort of issue with the manager to some sort of fight. But the true story was actually that his dad had become very sick. Um, and we felt, I, I mean, not just in my paper, but I think that all the journalists who had it, there was a, obviously a bit of an internal discussion. I decided that we yeah. could publish this to explain it, but it's probably not really fair on the player and not not in the public yeah. interest as dad is sick, especially given how sensitive it was. So. Yeah. We we we, di- we didn't actually write it. We just put down to uh, a personal issue. 
Yeah. And, and I, I suppose that's kind of the editorial judgment. Of, I mean, if, if there was, if there was, you know, it was a total free for all and no, and you know, quote unquote censorship, you just put that out because info, info you have, but that's not how papers should work. There should be ethical editorial judgment. Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose that the research has got to be done, as Stephen Ireland found out when he, I think he faked the death of two of his nans, didn't he, at some stage? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, international duty. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he has, to be fair to Ireland, he has come out and explained the situation there. I think that was a case of just a young lad feeling a bit of pressure um, yeah. and who unfortunately caught in a, in a rather silly lie. But yeah. yeah. And do you think, obviously, this podcast is around mental health, and do you think that is one of the things that a lot of players may struggle with, that element of it? I mean, they come through academies, they may be brilliant footballers, but it doesn't. We've spoke to quite a few people who work in youth teams and academies and players who have played the game, and one thing they never get taught is the expectation that's going to be on the shoulders, how to be trained with the media. Uh, but especially for those coming up the football pyramid, suddenly you and your family and your friends and your, your wife or your girlfriend sees a story about you in the paper. I don't think there's any type of training you get that helps you deal with that. Well, well even on a much more basic level than that, I've been in situations where a footballer has said something that he's been a bit, he hasn't really meant it, or he said something maybe a bit dodgy. Uh, yeah. or not. If Basically, if it was reported as he said it, he'd be absolutely leapt on and eaten alive. Um, but you, you sometimes it's just clumsy words, and they don't they don't really mean in that way. Uh, so so again, it, it, in that sense, you would uh, you look to be fair to the player. But yeah, as you say, I mean, you know, more more ruthless uh, journalists could just publish it as he as he says or whatever, and get a player into a lot of trouble. And yeah, as you say, there's no basically until you've had the experience, it's difficult to deal with something like that. But beyond that, I suppose as well, these are actually extremely high pressure environments because you know, we're talking about elite sport yeah. um, and uh, they're quite as, as much as you try to insulate players with mental health advice they're quite they're quite it's still quite a punishing environment in that way um, but, but by necessity it's so exacting and, and and really can have a lot of effect on players sense of self and their ego especially i mean if as is, as is natural in the game you know you're you're cut from a team you're let go um that again that's that's not something you can really prepare a young player for uh but that's what the best the game can do is to try and offer a service and try and insulate them even if it can't solve the issue from them because ultimately they can't make a club sign a player no yeah you're exactly right so do you think more can be done then with that transition so it's not a case of you've been with us since you're six years old you get to 21 and you cut loose do you think there needs to be a responsibility on the club to offer anything past that, or is it just yeah, the yeah. nature of the beast? Yeah, I, I think, although in, in fairness, I think some, some clubs are very good at this. But yeah, I, but I think that should be a responsibility of the game, yeah. Especially given that these are young men that they've, they, who have been in their care for a few years. They might be, you know, legally adults now. That doesn't mean... Uh, yeah. When they're 18, that doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean mentally they're adults. And I, th- I think, yeah, clubs should have a duty of care in that way as well. Um, Bruce, I don't think we could do this um, interview without touching on the, the Danny Rose um, article that you did, simply because it was it resonates exactly with what we're trying to do. And what we what we loved about it, it was it was an actual player that's still playing the game at a high level for the uh, Champions League, for his obviously um, for his country at the time as well. And he's come out and done that at sort of the height of his powers, which we thought was brilliant. Often when players talk about the struggles, they're either retired or they're talking about uh, the struggles after retiring from the game. So can you just give us a little bit of background of how that story came about and, and what went into that story and, and just a bit more detail? Um, 
Well, I, I, I can't take any credit for that story whatsoever other than the words I wrote to frame uh, Danny's words. Uh, and, and not just that, but also I think in terms of why he, why he spoke or, or yeah. more, more so the question that he was asked, because that was actually, that was the England media day before. And I think this is why I think it's even more impressive for, uh, from Danny's behalf. This was the England media day ahead of uh, the 2018 World Cup. So what yeah. they did that day was basically in, in the sport, in the one of the indoor pitches they have at St. George's Park, they put all the play, all 23 squad members, they put them in little boots there. And, jur- and the journalists were basically, for about an hour and a half, it was a, a, a completely open mix zone, and journalists could talk to um, to who, who they wanted. And so with the, with the nature of it, we all split into little groups to try and get as many of the players as possible. Yeah. Uh, and with Danny, it was um, there was one particular journalist. Um, I'm not going to say who he was, just in case there's any... It's, it's not my place to kind of break confidence. Yeah, there was one, there, there's one particular journalist who was very friendly with Danny, and he fronted up the interview with Danny and I, I think first of all Danny was comfortable talking to him in particular but even beyond that I think in, in a setting like that and that's, this is a room where there's like actually about 100, 100 people milling around more um, and he, even in that setting he he felt it was his responsibility to talk about an issue like that and I think that, yeah that, that's that's usually to his credit and I suppose shows his very um, proactive and forthright approach to uh, to mental health yeah, absolutely brilliant. And I think it it's almost allowed a lot of those England team members to feel a lot more confident coming forward on different subjects now. Um, yeah. Obviously, Raheem Sterling's uh, been a big voice for the black community and we're seeing a lot more of it now and I think it, it should be encouraged. So so as you go into that opening day, it, it was, that, was you aware that he may talk about this as a subject or was it sort of you know, just sort of spare in the moment that that's come about? <laughs> It was suggested he might, but I, I still don't think anyone expected him to go into that detail. Because it was, remo- it, it, I mean, if if you, uh, I, I think as you, uh, you probably imply there, it, 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 with the question, if you were to read that, just sit down and read an interview, you'd think it'd be one of those that had been conducted in kind of like a quiet room and and a forty yeah. minute chat. But it was, I mean, it was much much less intimate than that. So for him to go into such intimate detail w- w- was remarkable. Um, so and even if you expect him to talk about mental health now, I don't think you would have expected him to go into that level of detail and that, that level of uh, depth about it. Yeah, and you do, I mean, this might be a bit of an obvious question, but do you assume there's a lot more players who who are struggling that just won't come forward just because of, I don't know maybe a masculinity masculinity issue or yeah. obviously the the changing rooms can be a brutal place. I mean, we're all glorified Sunday league players. Uh, Danny probably played a little bit higher level than me and Anthony. But um, even in just playing with your friends, the banter can be ruthless and you can yeah. never really know what's going on in somebody's somebody's mind, really. And I think we're now opening up to it a little bit. So have you seen a positive impact off that back of Danny Rose, um, won't call it article, but the response that... Have you had anyone approach you over anything else, or have you seen um, a lot of people talking? Not, not so directly like that. Uh, I do think generally there has been a massive mental shift in the game, and there's a classic example I always think of, like when you hear or read stories, like say, even like the the the, the class of '92 at United, that like in that documentary they did, there's all yeah. those tales about the sort of hazing they had to go through when they're when they're coming through. And I can really, sometimes when you hear the stories, it does sound like industrial bullying. And yeah. that, that that sort of stuff is now actually completely unacceptable in the game. It just wouldn't happen. It's just not allowed. And I, and I do actually wonder, I mean, obviously the, the talk now is about how 
you know, whether the game is comparatively soft and it indulges the top young players in that way. But I mean, that's that's still that's a totally different conversation to what was actually happening before. Because I, the one one thing I always think, I I wonder how many really talented young footballers the game lost just because they couldn't they they just couldn't handle what was really essentially bullying in that way um, and and that stuff they should never have subjected them to because ultimately it's 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 basically an attempt at psychological conditioning that only suits certain personality types and it doesn't mean they're they're stronger personality types it's just something that's not not suited to everyone and, and people, some people would just naturally go I'm, 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 even if it doesn't get to actual, actual mental health issues but they might fairly go I'm not having this. This this is this is ridiculous. Uh, so I, and I, it's something I, I wonder a lot that um, wh- whether how how many players the game has actually lost in that way in its attempt to create winners or what have you. But I think that's one thing where luckily the game has um, has mercifully changed for the better. I think you're absolutely spot on. I think it even shows to a degree in management now as well, where I think the the arm around the shoulder type managers seem to be getting the most out of the teams. Um, as you look at Guardiola, Klopp, Rogers sitting in one to three, um, yeah. and while Roy Keane's sitting in a studio, still seeming a little bit bitter. And that's not to say he's not capable of being a great manager, but I think I think you're right. There has been a huge generational shift whereby players were a case of you come through the YTS, and it, it wasn't just scrubbing somebody's boots like they suggest. It was it was a lot of torment, wasn't it? And it probably yeah. left a lot of scarring for some people. And as you say, it was oh, easier yeah. to get out the game early than it was to stay in it. Just going back onto that, the Danny Rose interview, what was the response like that you got from your article that you wrote? Uh, very good, I have to say. Um, and again, I, 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 feel, I feel a bit, I do feel I did feel a bit guilty taking any sort of credit for, from it because basically all the newspapers did it uh, and they all had their own version of it. But uh, maybe it helped actually that Ian Wright tweeted it, which makes a difference. But it seemed. I think there's even even it's implied from you you your the questions about you lads. It was a bit associated with the independent that interview, even even though we were just only one of ten papers that did it. Um, but it was. I think it got a really healthy response. Um, it was there was huge engagement to it, and a lot of people, I suppose, just express you know really happy for Danny that he uh, that he spoke out in that way. What was that? What what was that like then? Being you know, as you say, you kind of had an inkling that he might have been you know, about to, to talk about that type of thing. And, you know, even so, it seems that it was a bit of a surprise for the people in the room. What was that like to hear somebody of, of such a high profile talking about something like this, which is very rarely done with someone at that level of the game? I think we, we, we were just blown away. I'm, I'm very impressed. And it, it was almost a case of letting him speak. Letting him speak. I mean, it, like even when questions were asked about him in that interview, they weren't kind of searching, but they didn't need to be searching questions because he was just, they were essentially just kind of clarifying things because he was just going with it, basically. And, and I think what what, what initially uh, triggered it was that he was talking about, if I can remember correctly, he was talking about the potential for getting racially abused at the World Cup and what he would do. But that naturally led into bigger issues about um, the psych- psychological impact the game has had on him and his, and his own... Uh, mental well-being, but but it, it but it did feel as if it was something he was waiting to talk about. Do you think football as an industry has got a, a bit of a, an issue with the way that it presents masculinity? Yeah, I um I, I do think it has evolved a lot. Um, even even in the space of ten years, uh, certainly in the space of twenty years. But I, I suppose you still can't get away from the fact that you know 
top level male football is a hyper competitive environment that will naturally involve the sort of aggression and embrace of language that where 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 it, where it comes down to to you know issues of masculinity you know and you know you'll you'll even some of the language used you'll still you'll you'll still hear stuff and in in terms of kind of like with tackles man up but you still all sorts of stuff around you know whether it's boys men against boys and all that sort of thing uh, so it, it still is very much the linguistic framework of the game i would say do you think there's something in this country as well because i think in 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 britain we've seen it with a lot of things recently that we're we're not a country that deals very well with things changing particularly yeah type of as you say that type of use of language you know man up men against boys those type of things i can i can almost hear the conversations in my head of oh you can't say anything anymore or everyone gets yeah now that sort of thing and i often think i don't i don't think that type of conversation is useful in attempting to yeah. understand why these issues keep these issues are, are happening well, if you if you I mean, if you look at it, and this applies both to media, or sorry, not both, but this applies to media, to dressing rooms, and he, and even to a certain degree to kind of say professional punditry, um, in that when players are being critically analysed, once you get beyond the football stuff, the actual technical football stuff and ability and all that, it can often come down to questions of character and mental fortitude like you know i suppose the, the the word bottling it but maybe that's a actually that's maybe gone a bit too far but yeah it can often come down to weakness of character and i suppose if you think about it to have to have your kind of like your your moral fiber question that day just because you got beaten two nil or whatever it's it's quite a, an extreme thing and you, you're hearing all sorts of stuff about why players didn't make it at top level why they couldn't make it at clubs like united or liverpool but and to a certain degree this is this is maybe an issue that the game is never really going to be to square in that sense because when you break it right down, football is a game, but professional football is a sport where the absolute point of that game naturally, inevitably, and what, what we all watch it for is to win. And winning will involve demands and exacting expectation and language. So there's there's actually there's always going to be a bit of a bit of tension there in that regard. So do you think it's one of those things where ultimately that element of it will always be there, but it's just how it's managed and how it's taught? Yeah, yeah, pretty much, and how, and how it's couched, I suppose, as well, yeah. I think, think, I think that's completely it. Do you think then, sort of building on 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 on, on what Danny, Danny Rose was talking about, was the, do you think if people continue to challenge and continue to sort of speak out in the way that Danny did against those type of, um, those type of attitudes... Do you think the more those things are broken down, then more and more footballers will start to talk? Or do you think it might be one of those things where, because we were talking about with this, the type of thing, there's, there's still no out gay footballers at the top level that are playing, that are, that are speaking, you know. And there, there must be a reason for that, that they don't feel comfortable enough. And to be, and to be fair, actually, I think because of the way the modern game has gone, and, and maybe kind of, you know, modern discourse, I, I think that's much less an issue within dressing rooms these days where uh, we've all heard certain stories and of certain situations where, you know, players know that one of their teammates is gay, but isn't yet prepared to publicly come out and they've got no problem with it. Um, Whereas I think the the issue is more, it's still about, I, I know this sounds like a cliche, 
but it's still about maybe what everything that surrounds the game and the potential for terrorist abuse. I mean, because let's let's be fair, you still hear um, you know racial abuse may it's it's made unfortunately a little bit of a comeback in the last few years, I think is related to all sorts of all sorts of societal issues, but it's still nowhere near as widespread as I think very basic uh, homophobic abuse. I mean, that, that still is often actually think is quite, um, it's, it's still fairly white. You still hear it an awful lot and, and often kind of the most blase ways as well, where, you know, properly homophobic abuse is basically just thrown out. If, if you know, if someone, if someone makes a bad tackle or whatever, or, or, yeah. or, or, or often the opposite where if they don't make a tackle, it's strong enough. So going on to you, you, you briefly touched on 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 Twitter before, and um, how do you kind of deal with feedback and, and criticism that you that you get online? Because you, you're you're quite punchy on Twitter, so you know, I mean, yeah. head on. But is there ever any time when it does get to you? I mean, in many ways, I think I'm actually a little bit grateful to to Twitter because my newspaper in Ireland went bust in January 2011. And that was pretty much 2010-11 was pretty much the season where Twitter, Twitter U started to explode, basically. And it, and it became much more central to football and football discourse. And I, I have to say, I think it was very helpful for me in terms of getting my work out there, particularly when I was suddenly a freelancer, and also being able to cross borders. In the, and and that's, that's one thing where Twitter has helped. Um that it, it kind of internationalizes work in that sense and you're exposed to kind of articles you wouldn't previously have read in, in before social media in that way. And certainly, I mean, it, it was very direct for me. There was a, there was an editor who liked my work and I got talking to him. And once he knew I was coming over to England, he, uh, he, he offered me, you know, a, a contract. And uh, so from that point of view, I probably have a, you know, a almost grateful relationship for tw- with Twitter in that way. And, but also I suppose, I, I think I was a, quite accepting that this, because because you're in a public job, because you're writing about public issues, the very nature of it means you're going to be exposed to criticism. Uh, people aren't going to like what you write because all the ultimately, you know, if, if you're saying something that can be perceived as negative about someone's favorite thing, it will get a reaction. That's just the nature of it. And I've always let that kind of slide off. And, and I've always, and I, and I, and I think that's probably related to the punchiness as well because I, I think. I, it does irritate me a little bit that people think they can say whatever they want to you. And then as soon as you say something back, it's like, oh, oh well, hang on, hang on, what's the story here? So I think it, it is a bit of fair game, although it has to be within reason. Otherwise, you get in trouble with your employers. <laughs> um, but but also, I think it, it, beyond that as well, it's a forum for debate. So again, within reason, it, 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 journalists should get involved. And I, I think that, that that's healthy as well. That And it makes also journalists more transparent when they're willing to actually engage on on their articles or what they write what they believe but there is sometimes a danger and i've i've have had this myself as well i mean a, a classic example actually was a, at the turn of the year where I, I i wrote something or when liverpool beat sheffield united had to break another record in that run and i i, I basically wrote something about while praise and liverpool said this has to be put in the context of what they are which is one of a, a group of super clubs who just by the nature of their resources are now going to win much more games than they ever did in the past and all this. And it led to three days of the most intense responses. And like say times like that, and especially, and that's when in situations like that, and I had, I had similar as well with Manchester city when I did a big piece on their owners around the cup final, just kind of fairly generally abusing you in that way. People can get very invested. And it's like getting quite personal with you. Um, and then you can get sucked into all sorts of debates. I think, 
I remember with it, that Saturday after he wrote that piece as well, I, I remember just thinking, I, I've been on Twitter here defending my position for about three hours now. This isn't really healthy. Uh, and you kind of just have to step away. And I, I, think, I think that's when it can get to you. Or when, or, or sometimes the rare, uh, what I'd like to say rare, the rare occasion where you've said something that's a bit stupid. And you can, you can get a proper pile on from people. And like, I suppose because you're a journalist with like, in my case, I was looking up tens of thousands of followers, but people can kind of see that as a fair game or because you're, you're certainly insulated by a certain amount of followers. Where, where that can actually, when you, know, when you become a bit of a joke in that way, that, that can get to you a little, but you've got to, you, you know, it's about, but I think from my own perspective, personally, because of the way I see Twitter and because I just, I just see it as a kind of a, you know, a public forum that way where some of this is inevitable. I, I, I am able to kind of mostly shut it out. Uh, um, and sometimes it can have the opposite effect where it causes me to basically to dig in maybe and be abrasive about my position more than it should be. Because I've, I've seen, I've had that sometimes as well, where you, you're getting, you're right into an argument with someone about something and it's getting quite edgy. And then sometimes you just stand back a bit and just offer a bit of conciliation in your response. And then the tone completely changes and it's actually, it actually becomes much healthier and a much kind of uh, um, beneficial debate, would you, what maybe I'd say, uh, rather than something that's kind of based on anger or some sort of, you know, you know, a- aggression. Because I think too, too much of online discussion can just naturally fall into that. When I think Twitter at its best is when it's a, it's it's healthy debate about these things. Um, the city the city one last year was bizarre, especially because there was this other element to it where. I mean, without getting into the kind of weird politics of all this sort of stuff, um, City, especially in relation to the owners and financial fair play, have an element of their fan base that are intense and almost, let's say, more neurotic than many other clubs. And a particular reader in that was this bizarre account called City Rabin, which drew kind of very selective use of information and a bit of distortion and deflection basically started these almost doxing campaigns and any journalist that deigned to uh, report in any sort of critical way on City's owners. And that created this massive pile. And that was one of those I was thinking, like, I remember, because I've got my, I've got my direct messages open, uh, just naturally because sometimes, sometimes people do come to you with stories or they have legitimate questions. But I remember I went on Twitter at, at that Sunday after the cup final, I just, it was just reams and reams of direct messages of abuse. I remember taking a, a screenshot to it and showing my girlfriend at the time, basically, and it's like she could <laughs> step step away from it. And that, yeah. that's all you can do because otherwise you can get took. And even with the, in that situation, and, and this would always be my point. Like, I think my, my what has actually sometimes got me into trouble, shall we say, on Twitter, not trouble, but in terms of these back and forths. When I first took to Twitter, and when it was kind of good for my career in a way, my actually my outlook on it was. I think it's healthy for journalists to, if people question things, journalists, it, it can be good to actually explain your case and where you're coming from. But that can just that can just devolve into rows, no matter how pro- progressive you try and be with it. And with that city case, even with that with that with that kind of with that account, I initially tried to get and try to uh, explain my case and be fair. But then I just realised that there's no point in this, and so I just kind of and that's one account. I don't I don't block that off, but that was one case where I block all these because there's no point in engaging this isn't this isn't a fair discussion football's you know incredibly tribalistic and, and has gotten more so even the last sort of five years or so oh without a doubt and i think i mean obviously it's it's actually a discussion that comes up a lot with, with journalists and i think social media has 
definitely and Twitter definitely has played a part in this because I mean if you, if, you, if you think about it a lot of the most tribal stuff would often have been restricted to pre-Twitter say would have been restricted to some bloke ranting in the pub or else kind of um, club forums where it doesn't really go beyond the walls of those forums whereas now certain views can get out there and while a lot of the kind of more reasonable fans will see them as ridiculous or whatever like-minded people will gravitate towards that and it will it can create just kind of suddenly this core of um quite aggressive fans in that way where you will basically yeah you 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 you'll get you'll get into these uh more <laughs> fractious exchanges so we have we we we're all in a, a WhatsApp group with the lads that we go to football with and yeah. we've all been mates for a long time and there is very much in that that kind of dressing room environment, that back and forth. And and because we've known each other for a long time, it can often get quite personal and quite yeah, um, quite heavy. And and it often feels to me like in the past we'd have had that conversation in the dressing room. We'd have, we'd have finished it, gone out and played football, come back in, got changed, and gone to the pub, and then that would have been it. But nowadays, because it's in in your WhatsApp group, you just can't get away from it, and it's impossible. It, it you know almost never ends. And I just don't know how healthy that is for people to be able to to, to take that, you know, the way that the, the people treat each other in in, in, yeah. in some ways is fine in small amounts as long as you accept that it's, you know, and things written down are obviously worse than, in, than, than verbally. But I often do wonder how healthy that is, the way that people speak to each other in on yeah. media and in WhatsApp. They think everything's fair game, basically. Well, yeah. actually, a classic element, a classic example of what you're thinking of, the day before the... League Cup final when Liverpool got beaten 3-0 by Watford and it was all sorts of talk about the Invincibles and I was kind of just sitting there watching TV before I was going out and I kind of just thought to myself now the part of this I suppose is I can't, I can't really keep these opinions to myself and I kind of it was something I wanted to say but this was an honestly held opinion and one thing I've often thought about the Invincibles where I thought I mean there's always been this irony with the Arsenal Invincibles they went they went unbeaten in the league unbeaten in the domestic season the domestic league season and I've naturally crowed about that but then in the competition they want, wanted most, which is the Champions League, it's ironic that they actually weren't invincible against a club just from over the road across London and Chelsea. Uh, and I've always thought that, and I've always thought that, that for, for as great as the invincible achievement was, it does slightly take away from that team's status. And I made the mistake of expressing this that night because then I had 24 hours of just what, intense abuse. And, 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 and I think what annoyed me most about that was people saying, you're just doing this to troll us. I'm not. I'm doing it because it's a legitimate opinion I have, and on something that's being discussed a lot. And and that, that's that's one of the irritating things that people that people just think everything is an attempt to score points or have a dig. When sometimes you actually just want to discuss these things. I mean, like because you know Arsenal don't Arsenal fans or they're maybe they're more intense fans. On the internet don't have an ownership on discussion of the Invincibles. I wonder if there's a, there's a there's a bit of an irony with with Twitter in particular that. It's it's almost there. It's like a discussion forum, like a, a place for debate. But it's a really inappropriate place for debate because it's just you know if you think about the the perfect way to have a debate, and then Twitter, which only gives you you know limited number of characters, and you can't see the person's face, you can't hear their intonation, you yeah, can't the things they're saying to them. And I often wonder if that's the thing that people like about Twitter is the reason that people get so angry on Twitter as well. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that totally it, yeah. And, and, and if you think about it, I I, I often think of um, it's, it's a line from The Sopranos 
where Hesh Rabkin said it about Tony Soprano's mother. Uh, there's, there's no interlocutor between brain and mouth, which when she comes in, she came out with very hurtful stuff to people. And that's a bit like Twitter in that sense, because, you know, there's no, it, it's just instant. People have a thought and they'll express it. And it can often be, and I've, I've found myself in this situation as well, where if you would a bit more thought, or if you even stepped away from the computer for a second, you, uh, you, you, you mightn't say that. Do you, um, would you be less likely to criticise somebody on, on social media now, given maybe some of the stuff that have been said to you in the past, has that made you maybe think differently about the way that you would interact with somebody else? Yeah, uh, I think it actually has, yeah. Uh, and even that applies to the job where you're always conscious of how you criticise young footballers or whatever. Uh, and, and it has to be, I think, within certain contexts or when there is, I mean, say with politicians or whatever, when there's, um, or people in football, when there's actually, you'd only go to a certain level of criticism when there's, a justifiable moral reason that way. But yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely the case. One of your uh, sort of journalistic colleagues, um, Archie Rintot, did some, put some stuff yeah, on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Didn't he, about um, how he'd had some some issues with depression and he'd taken some time off from, from journalism. Would you feel as though if you were in the same position as Archie, you'd feel comfortable to be able to be so, be as open as he was or to talk to friends and family about those struggles or... Do you still feel as though it's a, a subject that's still got a, a stigma attached to it? Um, well, maybe it does actually a little bit. Um, I know actually a fair bit because I spent a bit of time at the World Cup and, and knew him before that. And I have to say, I was struck and uh, quite impressed by the level he went in, a fair play. And what I was thinking, actually, I have one thing I did think, um, and maybe, maybe this is part of what we're talking about, and it's obvi- it's obviously influenced by the fact that I've never been in Archie's situations. I don't know for sure. But I was thinking that if I was, I'm not sure I'd have gone so far. Right? I mean, one of the issues is because it's quite a public job, people will notice if you're suddenly not on Twitter for a lot over a while. Yeah. Um, and I've even noticed that when I've been on holiday. Um, but say so. Say if you actually offer for any considerable amount of time, as Archie was with mental health issues, uh, and you suddenly came back or whatever. Um, I'm, I think I'd probably just try and continue as normal. I'm not sure I'd acknowledge it, or maybe just write, I was away for personal issues, whatever. So after I was very impressed by by the level that Archie went to, I think it was to his credit. Um, and yeah, it was at the same time, I can't, I can't deny this, I was also thinking it's a fair play to him because the danger, especially as given all we've been talking about and given you know how the amount of abuse involved with journalism and all that, it's the sort of thing that pe- people behind the screen could very easily weaponize against you. Mm. Um, so, I mean, so you kind of put that right up there. Um, and, uh, and I have to say, and again, I suppose being, being honest, and not, 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 not that, that Archie was anyway, anyway, we quite the opposite. But I was often thinking like, people will perceive that vicious people on the internet could perceive that as you showing weakness and try and attack it and, and, and try and attack you for it. Um, well, yeah, for, for, for all that, I'm not sure whether I've gone, I would have gone as far as Archie, uh, but I think it's to his absolute credit that he did. Have you ever had um, friends or family have similar sort of conversations with yourself? Uh, occasionally, maybe, maybe not not to the degree Archie has. I mean, quite, quite, quite typically, I suppose, with, uh, even, even with um, modern men, it's, when it comes down to discussions like that, it's usually because of uh, the end of relationships. And that, that's what... That's what Brings it out in, in in male friends more than anything else. Mm. Um, but but n- n- um, 
not quite to that degree, no. It's it's interesting you should say that because uh, Ryan and, and and Anthony, the the three was been mates for a long time, and kind of where this the podcast came from was on the back of um, some issues that the that I've had with anxiety and, and depression and, and Anthony won't mind me saying has had some problems of his own as well. And they were often your little thumbs up there, lovely mate. Um they they were prompted by two relationships that I had that came to an end. And yeah I, and one of the things that Carl's when we spoke with Carl about was he was saying that men are getting better at talking about their feelings, but it'll almost be like that it's codified that there has to be a reason to do it. You, you know, it, we should get better at, you know, even if it's not so much about having maybe anxiety or depression, but more about men being more comfortable talking about something other than football or films or TV or Twitter or something. Maybe make yeah. an effort to say, how are you doing today? Like, how was Yeah, doing? totally. Well, there's actually, and you know, without, it's on, in relation to what you're talking about, what immediately came to mind there, there is, especially the mention of football, there's that, I watched it recently. There's that classic episode of Cracker. And Cracker is ultimately about psychology because the main character is a, a forensic psychologist. Uh, and it's actually in the episode, the the the, the, Hills, the episode related to Hillsborough, uh, to be a somebody. And when he, when he, right in the scene where he's getting right, and I think this is one of the reasons why that show was so perceptive and so true to life, uh, despite the fact it was obviously about the sensationalism of killers that isn't maybe true to life, but in terms of how people act. But when he gets right down to it with the murderer, and the, the the psychological motivation for what he did, one of the things he said is, you know, basically it gets down to his relationship with his, with his father, and the, the character fits basically goes, you know, they, they, the story was that the dad was a Hillsborough, so he he, he couldn't talk about football anymore. With he just couldn't bring himself to face football anymore, and as 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 Fitz, the main character, says to him, and that was that basically, wasn't it? can't talk about football anymore and that basically meant he didn't have a relationship with your dad anymore and I, that touches on something that's still true and and there is probably an element that uh, football and it's like, is a useful shield for a lot of men and that it gives us something to talk about that isn't actually too deep football being is, is a good conduit to almost allow you to talk about your emotions without having actually having to do it yeah exa- exactly exactly totally uh, and we've seen obviously uh, a, a kind of increase in in the awareness of mental health and football. Um, the Take a Minute initiative by the FA and and Mind have had quite a heavy involvement with the football league this season. Do you think football as an industry should be should be doing more with mental health? Um, I think they've made a lot of right steps, but yeah, I I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, I I do ultimately they can't really do enough, can they? In that sense, there's, there's always more to do, especially given the the nature of what the industry is which is uh, again uh, a game that is basically a, a professional sport that you have to win and will involve a lot of me- uh, you know exacting mental demands um so that that is some aspect that will always need to be taken care of yeah so th- i think there is there is there is more they can do so miguel delaney there i think one of the interesting things that i took from that interview was that much like what we kind of learned from jamie curitan was the Journalism, whilst it may seem like quite a glamorous industry and quite a, you know, an amazing job to have, which I'm sure that it is, it is a lot more difficult and a lot more troubling and, and hard graft than it probably looks from the outside. Uh, and I think that's one of the things Miguel got across really well there. There was the, while he does love it and he does enjoy it, it still is a really difficult job. Um, 
One of his colleagues, Archie Rintos, who we did talk about in that interview, um, spoke out about his, his difficulties with depression on, on Twitter in a, in a thread that he put on in, in January of this year. And talking that openly as someone in his industry, I suspect that must have been quite difficult for him. I think uh, talking openly just in general, I don't think it really discriminates what industry you're in. I think in general it's quite tough. I've seen various different different people do it recently. Um, but particularly one where you are kind of relied upon to perform pretty much every day um, in terms of you know the words that you use and the words that you write. I think that's it's quite good to see. Uh, you know, uh, quite a high profile. You know, he's involved in in ESPN as well, I think. And someone high profile like that, I, I'm hoping that will give a, a good effect or have a good effect on on the people who saw it as well. I think there was a lot of engagement in that tweet, and um, I think it the overarching feeling from that was it was generally a positive move to do, and it, it helps alleviate any. Um, any cynical feelings as to why he might not have been doing the job that he was. So, yeah, I think it's it, it was a great thing to see as well. And you've spoken about it quite a lot. And um, I, I know yourself, you've, you've released uh, a similar kind of social media um, openness uh, letter as well. So, um, you know, I, I'm all for it. I, I think we, we should carry on doing it. I think the more we can use these platforms to, to not hide behind, I think we can... Um, you know, progress um, if we are open. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're bang on, mate. And I think what's, what's really nice about it is, I, I, is that the response that you get from those things? And I, I found it personally, obviously, um, when I, I did mine at a similar time to, to Archie's. And, and for me, it was kind of one of those things where I just felt like it would, it would help to talk about it. And, and as much as anything else, it might help for other people to turn around and and speak to me about it, which they, they've done as well. And it's been it's been a really humbling experience that the the stories that people have told me and that the messages that people have sent me. It's been it's been incredible. Ryan, one of the other things that Miguel touched on was that was really interesting. When he moved down to down to London from from Ireland, he said that obviously he didn't really know anybody there and he, he was looking for a circle of friends and he went to Five Side Football with someone that he knew, where he's kind of got his group of friends from that he's still friends with now. We've spoken on the podcast before about how important football can be in sort of bringing people together. I think it's hard to replicate the how important football or any team sport can be in building the circle of friends. I mean, take this podcast, for example. I know you, Dan. I know you, Ant. And we keep saying on the podcast that we're all Tramia fans, but essentially we played footy together for years and we're still friends today, although none of us really play that much footy anymore. And... I know for a fact school for me was easier because I played football and I think that's the same for a lot of people and we had uh, Dr Dan Parnell on the show didn't we uh, a few weeks back and he said the reason he took his son to football was because he's got so many friends to this day that he met playing football. I'm not saying it's the only way you make friends but it is certainly one of those things that just makes it easier. And, and I play footy with work now and then five aside. And whenever whenever anybody new joins the team and they, they play football, it's just the best icebreaker you can have. They may be quiet for the first few weeks in the office, but they come to that footy after work and, and all of a sudden they feel a lot more part of the team. They're coming in the next day, you're talking about goals and tackles and it just opens up the conversation. And 
while football and sports shouldn't be the only conversation, it is a universal language. And you often find yourself, whether it's at like a conference of work or in in sort of periods of your life where you're, you're meeting somebody for the first time, the go-to question tends to be, who do you support? And it's not the only conversation, but it can be an important conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, as you say, we've all met through football and we're all still friends with the same lads that we played football with a while ago. And, you know, as much as anything else, whilst we're on lockdown at the moment, the, the talk in a lot of our WhatsApp groups that are with lads that we still play football with now, every now and again, is, I wish it was Monday night. Or I saw you send one the other, the other day, Ryan, saying, I wish we were scrabbling around for a, you know, for the last player on a Wednesday, which is... Yeah. I think we'd be remiss not to really talk about the Danny Rose interview, the, the Danny Rose article that, that Miguel wrote back in, in 2018, where... Danny talked about his, his uncle's suicide and, and issues he's had with, with anxiety. And I think it was, I'd probably say it was a watershed moment, really, for me as, as a football fan and as someone who's got an interest in mental health, to see somebody at such a high profile talk about that type of thing. And do you kind of remember that article when it came out? I remember the reaction uh, to what he was saying, more through the television and media, through Sky Sports News. Um, there are other sports news uh, channels available. But the thing I found about it was it was at a time where the England manager is trying to make his players more engaged with the media to alleviate those stereotypical, awful pre-tournament um, stories that appear in newspapers where the front pages kind of go after and target for sensationalised stories uh, of the England team and I think I think you were playing darts and with <laughs> journalists and it was just something that no one had ever really seen before and I think when, when Danny Rose spoke up it was it, <laughs> to be honest the only way I can I can sort of say it was phenomenal you know and yeah. the response that the response that he got was was amazing as well and I think he was uh, at the time I think he's you know he He's gone through a few more troubles since, but at the time he was, he was England's left back. He was going into that tournament, and I think you know Miguel said it, it came about from the worries of going to to Russia, um, which was you know at the time quite a, a scary thing for for a lot of um, a lot of the black players in the England team and a lot of the black players in in many other countries as well. So. Um, it was it, it was kind of yeah it was phenomenal. I, I liked the the openness from a from an England player. You don't really see that. You see it's so media trained. You know they come out and go, oh yeah, the game was really good. It was really this. It was really that. But he came out and just spoke like you know me and you are right now. It was face to face and it was look. This is my life. This is why you know I want to tell you. And can you please respect that as well? I think that was the that was the overarching thing that was trying to build that respect between the. The journalists and the, and the players, which has never been there before. Yeah, you're spot on, mate. I think I think the biggest thing is, as we say, professional football, especially at that level, can be such a closed shop to to to, to football fans, and people often feel quite de- you know disconnected from football at that level. Ryan, we've obviously you and I have had dozens of conversations about this, but do you think that Danny Rose interview and a lot of what Southgate's done has been a really important step in almost? rehumanizing footballers definitely and what i want to say which ties into that is it's all about the environment for me so people have struggled since the dawn of time and how we express that struggle it can come out in various different ways but the environment's got to be there for you to talk about it 
in this podcast, we've talked endless times about the dressing room in the 80s and the 90s and to a lesser extent, maybe the early 2000s and how people wouldn't speak up. Now, people have had problems in sport and all walks of life for, for years and years and years, and you've got to have the environment to feel confident to speak up. The interesting thing about the Danny Rose situation is football isn't seen as one of those environments and certainly not in a press room. So the fact he did that in a, a sort of an alien environment, I think had like a, a poignant message in there that he sort of not only wanted to deliver his message, but he also wanted to go against the grain and say, I'm not really scared to say this, which, as you touched on, was kind of watershed. And I think we see that all the time, that people will openly discuss, well, maybe not so openly, people will discuss the troubles, but it'll always be in an environment that's suited to it. So that could be someone you can confide in, a therapist, a group session, a CBT therapy session that you've done. And football just isn't seen as one of those environments where you talk about these things. And I think we touch on masculinity a lot, and and that probably rings true as well. So there's probably a reason why people pick the mums to speak to more than the dads. Um, And I think Carl Anker touched on that when you went down to to Southampton to see him. So I think if you change the environment, football will catch up. I don't think you need to push footballers to speak more. You just need to place them in an environment that allows them to speak more. And Danny, just touching on that, I think with with Danny Rose, we often hear the, the, the cliche, you know, footballers are role models. And it's normally used in a way that, like a negative way. So, you know, he should be a role model. He needs to be doing this. He needs to be doing that for the wider local community. And particularly at this time as well, uh, during the lockdown, you know, that's come under a lot more scrutiny where clubs need to be role models for their local community. And I think at that point, Danny Rose was that role model. You know, anyone looking at him, a young... A young guy looking at him, a young woman looking at him, just anyone really who's going through any struggles in their life and looking at someone and going, he's performing at the top level, he's got these struggles, I can do that as well. And it's it's the Tyson Fury thing as well. You know, more recently, we finally got that role model. Yeah, I agree. And I think combined with, um, with Raheem Sterling, who I think gets mentioned in that interview as well, they're almost making an effort to kind of reconnect with people and, and kind of talk to people on a human level, which, you know, is difficult given, you know, it's elite sport. It's, it is far removed from, from everyday life. I kind of want to move on to, to Twitter. A lot of people will know Miguel from his, uh, his exchanges on Twitter, which, which can be quite punchy, can be quite uh, quite fiery. One of the interesting things, I think, with Miguel is how he kind of deals with, with shutting those things down. We've spoken, again, previous times, and, and we use our Twitter to, to kind of, A, to promote the podcast, but B, kind of sort of connect with people and spread a bit of a message and Twitter can be a force for good but we've also seen how it can be a force for bad. Which sort of side of the fence do you kind of sit on Ant, with, with with Twitter? I, when Miguel said, you know, he, he sees uh, Twitter as a kind of public forum for debate, that never ever really entered my mind in, in so much that I always used to think it was a way of connecting with people in terms of like, you know, like a, having a laugh and a joke. And I think when you open it up as a as a debate, you are going to get the, the, the ones who don't really want to debate, like he, he touched on. I think I was on Twitter today, actually, and it, it was, you know, it was, it was a tough day. There was a, a few things, you know, nasty things floating around. And 
I got off my phone and I was like, I don't want to go back on it, but you're kind of drawn to it because I enjoy Twitter. It, it, you know, it's a really, it's a good thing to, to be on it. You know, it, it connects you to all sorts of things. And the last thing that I, I kind of saw was something that my, my my friend retweeted onto my timeline, and it was um, it was a really uh, quite emotional video of of a of a, a girl with epilepsy getting given a, a therapy dog to to help with anxiety. And at that point, I never knew that's what I needed to actually change my opinion on how my day had gone. So, you know, I'm not going to be ashamed about this. I had a little tear in my eye. Um, I couldn't really explain why. Um, But it was, you know, it was emotional. I think maybe the animals helped. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But Twitter, it's it's this kind of um, fraught place at times. But when you search in the wrong places you're always going to find that but if you search in the right places you're going to find good things and happy things and funny things and i think that's where twitter works best and and miguel is right twitter does work best as a debate forum as well i like the way he deals with it i liked when he said i try and stay off it uh, you know blah 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 but i think when you listen to it you can hear you know his messages going in the background so yeah i, I kind of like the, the the kind of ignore and block kind of uh, strategy to be honest I, I think that works best rather than than giving any oxygen to the to the people who want to you know, i don't know say nasty things yeah i think you're right mate and i think you know certainly shouldn't be ashamed of having a little karen tierney that's awful absolutely awful ryan karen tierney <sighs> um to, to kind of return <laughs> maybe to a slightly more sensible points to, to finish on on that point right as as Anne says there i think twitter can be a force for good and there can be some really good things on twitter and and i use it mostly for, for things that people are saying that are quite funny and what have you but there is a time i think that, that there does need to be some self-management with twitter i think people do need to look after themselves on there because there is quite a lot of hate quite a lot of nastiness isn't there there is and that came across in what miguel said i thought he was very balanced in his approach and he's probably quite experienced I am um, with the number of followers he's got he's probably learnt lessons himself and knows how to manage it but I think you're right because I think this isn't just a Twitter problem it's an internet problem it, it's used for good and for bad and the problem you have is in it is you can't censor everything and you can't just turn on uh, positive browsing and then we see the positive things so I think before you decide you're going to use the internet in various formats and how much of it you're going to use you need to ask yourself how much of it you can handle. Um, and I think that is a self-responsibility. I, I don't think you can you can always just expect somebody else to not put their thoughts on the internet because you're offended. But equally, I do think that these social media giants could do a little bit more to regulate and police, maybe not allow people to create accounts if from the same IPN addresses or maybe if they can somehow put some form of identification so if there is a hate crime it can be traced back but ultimately it's a hotbed isn't it you've got limited characters you're talking to people that you may not know you may disagree immediately and it's easy for people to see red and say something horrendous but equally I do believe that there's more good than bad out there and you will see some amazing stories and I think most people are genuinely good people unfortunately it's it's the the five percent or less who who are horrible that that have the loudest voices most of the time and it's just what Anne said um about how maybe just mute them 
don't give them the oxygen to breathe, don't give them the oxygen to be, to spread and become hateful. Uh, because yeah. that's the one problem we have. Somebody says something hateful, it gets retweeted, it gets thousands of comments, and before you know it, that's what you're talking about. But let's let's look at puppies. Let's not look at the, these hateful messages. Um, and just to add to that, Dan, and I don't know if you want to add your thoughts to this, but could you imagine any walk of life? Like I think people assume that journalists just jump on the computer and they write a story within an hour. They don't actually see the phone calls, the research, fact-checking that goes on in the background. It could be weeks and months. And Imagine you did an amazing painting, you spent all day on it, and someone walked past and went, that's shit. Or you put it online and someone said, that's terrible. It must be so hard to, to not react to that because I don't think many of us experienced that. So I must say, hats off to Miguel. He was very open. He was very balanced. And and I think outside looking in, it's sometimes you don't appreciate how difficult that must be. Um, so that's us for this week. Thanks to Ryan and thanks to, to Ant for joining me. Thanks, lads. No problem. No problem, mate. So we'll be back on Monday with former Redding and older shot midfielder Scott Davis. Scott's got an amazing story to tell about his addiction with gambling, lost almost 200 grand at a, at a young age. He now works with football clubs, informing their young players about gambling and about managing their finances. Before we leave you, we will have Miguel's quick fire, his squeaky bum, which didn't he tell us that there's some debate about whether Alex Ferguson actually said that? I think he said that there's some debate that it might actually be squeeze your bum time, not squeaky bum time. Um... He did say that, yeah. Yeah, he did. I, I think, I mean, personally, I think we go with squeeze your bum time. What do you reckon? I didn't like squeaky bum time, so I'm not sure where I stand on this. Yeah, well, I've got the admin rights for everything, so I'm, I'm going to go with squeaky <laughs> bum time. Uh, so thanks, lads. Uh, uh, we're going to leave you with Miguel's quick fire. This episode will obviously be on all the podcast channels, as are all the others. And you can find us on Twitter at Markin underscore man. And make sure you use the hashtag, where's the talking lads? Miguel, should Liverpool be given the title? I'd still be in favour of trying to play the season out whenever that is. Yes, they're so far ahead. They're obviously the best team. But for all sorts of reasons, I, and I'd and i still be in favour of actually just playing it out. And I'd prefer that to just... I'd prefer that to either cancelling the season or just, just, or just handing it out without completing it because I think it's better for the integrity of the game and also I don't think no matter what happens the 2021 season is going to be impacted uh, so I think you're, you are better off trying to complete this one and at least having one complete season out of the two years really affected by all this secondly if the season was to be cancelled right like that or even if Liverpool were given the title and other issues had to be decided another way it would it would compromise the next season anyway so I, I, I think we're yeah. better off just trying to finish the season whenever that is. Uh, and I, but I, I'm, I'm 100% sure it will, it will end with Liverpool being champions anyway. If Ireland play Spain, who do you support? Uh, this has actually happened a few times in my life, including in Euro 2012. Uh, and I've actually been very cynical about this in that I've always supported the team that who winning will be better for. Um, so, so in 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 2012, uh, Ireland lost the first game. That pretty much killed their chance of trying to get through the group. Their, their second game was I think in Spain. Spain had drawn the first game against Italy, and we're really going for three trophies in a row. So I really wanted Spain to win that. In 2002, though, I would have gone for Ireland had Kane or sorry had had Roy Keane not Kane had Roy Keane still been in the team because I think that that was a chance 
for a historic opportunity for Ireland. But the whole keen going kind of complicated things for me. And Spain started to pick up speed in that tournament a bit. So actually, I was probably more in favour of Spain then as well. But I would be totally cynical about this generally. Like in, I remember when I was young when they played in the in the qualifiers USA and before. I wanted Ireland to win. Uh, but yeah, I'd be uh, I'd be quite pragmatic about it. What was your uh, footballing moment of 2019? In probably one of the... Cha- I mean, probably going to be the, the four... I'm not a Liverpool supporter, but I suppose for everything I represented, the 4 nil against Barcelona. There were so many moments in that Champions League one, actually. And in fact, yeah. this, this, is, this is slightly irritating me. Or not, not irritating me, but you know, in terms of what we're talking, intensity, the job and all that. And because so much of, the job, of our job involves travel, and it can wear you down. But say in the, for the Champions League semi-finals... There was agreement in our office that we you wouldn't do more than three of the four, just for all sorts of reasons. So I did basically the two Liverpool legs, obviously great, and the home Spurs leg, but didn't do the Amsterdam leg. And I think just because it was in the last minute, which which is inherently more dramatic, I regret not going to that uh, Spurs Ajax game. Yeah. Uh, who is the most intimidating person you've ever interviewed? I'm not sure I can say I've interviewed him, but I was in a group of about five people at a press conference with Alex Ferguson uh, and just ultimately I mean I was quite I was younger it was early by the nature of it, it was earlier in my career and I was I didn't have that much experience but even then compared to figures now he just had that aura and uh, I was actually in one of the press conferences where he got quite pissed off uh, and actually w- walked out after two minutes and we were informed that none of the none of the press conferences for use I was very fortunate to interview Johan Cruyff in 2013 and he was he was intimidating, not because of how angry he was or that, but I suppose because of how intelligent he was and what yeah. how different the thinker he was. Because he was like when you'd ask him questions, he'd almost challenge the premise of the question. Uh, and you you had to you had to really be on your toes when you were talking to him. Was Paul Scholes overrated? Uh, I actually think slightly yes. Uh, I think he was a brilliant player with the way he's talked about now, especially with all these fake quotes that do the round that come from like, oh Zidane said this about Scholes or whatever. Um, you'd, you'd think he was kind of just had relentless perfection for 15 years but it's often forgot he was very rarely United's best player in fact he was probably never United's best player so it was about four years where he wasn't really even in the team where he was his, between 2003, 2003 and 2006 now he did suffer issues with his eyes it must be remembered but it looked like he was almost done at one point um, and I, I think while he was an absolutely brilliant player I think there's been almost because of the type of player he was there's been a bit of over mythologizing of him since then, and I, I think that's actually true of a lot of players like that. Another one who's Pirlo, who was obviously like Skulls, one of the best players of his generation, but because of that aura he had and because of the way he played, it's as if he's been elevated to a level he didn't quite reach. And that's notwithstanding the fact that he was in quality. That's one of the most stupid questions I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Ashley Young, I ask his questions. You're just looking for little stupid little things. I'm not going to go on with this all night, honestly. No, listen, listen, just stop it right now, right? We're here. It's a European night. We're here to talk about a European game. You've had plenty yesterday. You've had plenty tonight. So I'm going to concentrate on the game tonight. If you want to ask a question, I'm happy to answer it. Feel not, forget it. Really? Well, because of your behaviour. Why would I want to meet you people? The way you behave, you're as bad as anyone. You don't deserve for you to come to a press conference. Why should I bother with you? Well, first of all, I just want to address you people in front of me, the dailies. 
had some of his band for a few weeks and to be honest we get fed up with it. Your job is to tell the truth, right? That's your job. You can quote me when I'm accurate about things that I've said. I'm not going to have you twisting everything I say, okay? So the next time, it's finished. You don't have to bring it back in, okay? I mean that clear to you. You don't get back in. Finished. I'm fed up having to read papers and talk. Things I say, and they're all said, and you completely twist around. Why? Your job is to tell the truth. That's your job as a journalist. And if you can't do that, you're in the wrong job. Okay? So make that clear.